book of Luke this morning, please, in chapter number four. I want you to read with me some passages, some verses of Scripture. We begin in verse number 14, Luke 4 and 14. Would you stand, please, to your feet with me as we read the Word of God today? Luke 4 and 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, the preceding passage is about His temptation, where He has met the devil and overcome Satan's temptations. And now he returns to Galilee, his home area, in the power of the Spirit. And there went out a fame of him through all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, his hometown. And as his custom was... What was his custom? He went to the worship of the people there. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read because the males rotated the reading of Scripture in the synagogues. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Notice the categories of people, the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister, and he sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fasted upon him. And he began to say unto them, This day is the Scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And Heavenly Father, today, again, I come into your presence and ask that you will guide me as I preach your word today, that I will be true to the word above everything else, and that you will fill me and give me Holy Spirit power. And I pray that you will open the hearts and minds of those who listen in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. The series right now is Reality, Making Sense of a crazy world. And the subject of that series is worldview, developing a worldview. A worldview is the way that we look at the events of life and interpret those events. I found it interesting as I went through the Creation Museum and Noah's Ark up in Kentucky a week or two ago, there were signs that were repeated throughout. And here's what the sign said. It said that a Christian, a person with a biblical worldview, and a secular person like an atheist, for example, can look at the same evidence, can look at the same facts, and draw completely and totally different conclusions from those facts. So all of us know what a fossil is. 
we can look at a fossil. And the evolutionist looks at the fossil, and he comes to one set of conclusions. And a Bible-believing Christian looks at the same fossil in the same museum somewhere, and we draw completely different conclusions, and it's all because of worldview. Worldview is the glasses, the lenses through which you look at the events of life and interpret those events. And by the way, parents, oh, hear me, parents. This week, I heard something that was very powerful to me. It said that a worldview begins to develop at 18 months of age. I said last week to the people, the greatest need we have in this church is for people who'd be willing to serve in the children and the preschool ministry. And uh, we, 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 we're finding it very difficult to get people to, you, you, you want to bring them to us and let us take care of them. We really need you to help us with them. We need young couples to get in there and help us rear these children for the Lord. And a child begins to develop worldview, the way they interpret life, it begins as early as 18 months of age. Isn't that incredible? So if we don't get them early, there's not much use in messing with them when they turn 40 or 50 or 60 or whatever it is. We'll do what we can, obviously. We want to care for everybody. But we must reach people and develop that worldview at a very tender age if we want them, in fact, to think like believers. Now, Chuck Colson said, quote, Christianity is more than a system of ethics. It is more than the moral teachings of Christ. It is more than a religion, and it is more than having a personal relationship with Christ. Christianity is a world view. Say that with me. Christianity is a worldview. It's the way we look at and interpret the events of life. And Christianity is God's explanation of reality. Not looking at life through the lenses of the unbeliever, the evolutionist, the secularist, but looking at life as God has defined life for us. Throughout the series here, I've used two illustrations repeatedly. One, that the, the Bible is a narrative. It is a story. This is a storybook. It begins in the Garden of Eden. It goes all the way through to the end of time. The Christian faith is a story. It is God's story of reality. It's not a myth. It's not like a fairy tale story. It is not like some little story that we repeat that may or may not be true. This is God's story, the story of mankind, the story of reality, the story of life, if you will, according to the author of life, Almighty God, a true narrative, if you will, of history. And secondly, the second illustration I've used is putting a puzzle together, pour the puzzle out on a table, and you look for those pieces that have a straight edge on them because you know they frame it up. And then you begin looking for the pieces that touch them, and you kind of move toward the center until finally the picture becomes evident of what you are, what the puzzle contains. And so in the same way, I'm framing for you the puzzle of a biblical worldview. I'm taking the 
big major pieces and I'm trying to build the frame so that you can take the rest of the pieces of life and you can put them together. And so it, the pieces begin with God. In the beginning, God. He's a reality. He's not a figment of imagination. And then he created man, sinless and perfect, in a perfect environment. And then man rebelled, and man sinned against God. And when he sinned, everything changed. Everything changed. Death, disease, disappointment, defeat came into our lives. And ever since then, we've lived with the consequences of that rebellion against God because we all inherited the nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. We inherited what we call a sinful nature. And we all have it. You have it before you're saved, and you have it, by the way, after you're saved. Because you're a Christian, that old nature was not eradicated. You still have that old nature. And so today, God, man, the third piece of the puzzle, of course, is sin, and then Jesus Christ. And last week, I talked to you about who Jesus was. He was absolutely unique in all of human history, there's nobody like the Lord Jesus. Now today, I want to talk to you about the mission of Jesus. Last week, it was who he was. This week, it's why he came. His mission here that we are still attempting to carry out, of course. His mission is not complete. So I'm going to start in a very logical way, though, I trust. And I'm going to tell you why Jesus did not come before I tell you why he did come. And I only have a two-point message today. Two points. Why he did not come, and secondly, why he did come. And what prompted my thinking on this was a headline that was in the Reuters News Service this week and last week. The headline stated this. Today in America... We're seeing a new phenomenon among, quote, Christians. It's the rise of the religious left. The rise of the religious left. And the article goes on and talks about that the religious left is represented by churches who have a liberal, progressive philosophy. Now, you and I know that doesn't mix very well with the Bible, but... I'm quoting what the article said, or I'm telling you what the article said. So the religious left represents churches with a liberal progressive philosophy whose primary focus is social action and what they refer to as social justice. And now they're organizing across the country like the religious right did back in the days of President Reagan. They're modeling that, and they're attempting to um, they're t attempting to oppose President Trump's agenda on several different things, especially on the issue of illegal immigration. Deeper into the article, I read where a, a lady who is the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Now, you probably don't know much about Union Seminary I, because you're, that's not the world you live in. But I know about Union Seminary. 
Union Theological Seminary is arguably the most liberal seminary in the whole United States of America today. If you go to, if you go to Union and you come out there believing what they believe, you won't believe much of the Bible. You will look at the Bible as more of a mythological type of book. And it's always been on the far left of the, of the spectrum politically and, and socially and so on. And the woman who is the president of the seminary there said, in every church today, the priorities need to become immigration and climate change. And so I thought today I'd bring you a message on climate change. Aren't you excited about being here today? Don't you want to hear a message today on climate change? Well, the woman said that's what we're supposed to be doing. Who am, I to, who am I to argue with this lady? She says those are the priorities for Christians today is immigration and climate change. Jay Gresham Macon is one of my theological heroes. He was a professor who really was a key monumental figure back in the days when modernism and liberalism came out and began to oppose biblical Christianity in America. And he said something that every, every person who's informed and theologically is familiar with. J. Gresham Macon said in those days, quote, liberalism and Christianity are two different religions. Think about that. Christianity and liberalism are two different religions, but they're not the same. Now, the staff and I meet before the service, and we have prayer over my office for just a few minutes. I told them, I said, you guys pray for me today, because I'm going to preach some things this morning that if you can be misunderstood, you will be misunderstood. So it's a given going in. I, I, I know there are, going people, there are going to be people who misunderstand. But it is so vital that we understand a biblical worldview in light of what the left, the theological left, not the political left, but they're one and the same basically, what the left is trying to do in the country. And maybe I should put a disclaimer on the very front of the message and say something like this, that it is a given. Everybody understands that Jesus wants us and taught us to be generous. He taught us to be givers, to be compassionate toward those who have need. Whether it be the weak or the poor or the helpless, the handicapped, Whoever it may be, Jesus taught us to be compassionate and generous people. By the way, though, it doesn't end with them. Jesus taught us to be generous and compassionate to everybody, to the rich and the powerful as well as the poor and, and the needy, everybody. It, it shouldn't matter about their status. Jesus taught us to give voluntarily. His words are to individuals, not to governments, when he says, give and it shall be given unto you. He taught us as individual Christians that we have a 
personal, individual responsibility to help people when we have resources that we can help them with, and they have a need, and they come into our life, especially those who are in our close circle of acquaintanceship. And so he taught us that, but he didn't say to the governments of the world, now you need to take care of the needy people and balance up all the social injustices, uh, and you need to do that by taking from one group of people and redistributing it to another group of people. He did not teach that. The Bible does not teach that, though the religious left will teach that. And he taught us to give. He taught us to voluntarily give, but not through governmental coercion. And though he taught us to give as individuals, it was not the main focus of his life. I told you I'd be misunderstood. The main focus, the main message of Jesus Christ was not about social injustice, feeding the poor, and doing all the good deeds that people are talking about in this movement. Recently, I say recently, two, three months ago, I got an email from a lady who, who I think attended here. She said to me, I, I, I like your church. I come there and I listen and, and you really preach the Word of God and the music is wonderful. The people have been very friendly, but your website doesn't mention what you do for the poor. So am I to believe basically she was saying you don't do anything for the poor? Well, I wish the lady was better informed. I tried to inform her. I would argue that this church probably gives, takes up the largest food drive in the PD area of South Carolina. What do we give, 20 tons of food at Christmas every year, 15 tons or something? I don't know. When you get into tons, it doesn't matter. A ton is a ton, you know. Lots of food. We fill up that foyer with food out there, and we give it all to agencies who help poor people. We support every month locally the Lighthouse, the House of Hope, the Manor House, the Mercy Medicine Clinic. You know why it's not on the website? Because that's just what you're supposed to do. We don't brag about that. We just do it. And it's not the main mission. It's a byproduct of the main mission. The main mission of Jesus Christ, please don't misunderstand me, it was not to feed the poor. And it was not social justice. The main mission of Jesus Christ, he stated it right there in Luke chapter 4. You have it in your Bible. First time he ever went and made a public statement was at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. And in the middle of verse 18, he said, I came to preach the gospel to the poor. You see it right there in black letters on white paper? You see it there? He didn't say feed the poor. He told us to do that. Yes, we do that. But his mission, the reason that he came was to proclaim the gospel throughout the whole world. Now, I'm preaching on this because we're talking about worldview. And I'm hoping that I'm helping people form a biblical worldview. And the trend is going the other way because in many evangelical circles today, that has become the main job of the church. And you go to church 
and all you hear about are social action type of uh, projects that they're involved in. You're not going to hear them talking about go out this week and share the gospel with Jesus Christ. They're going to talk about going out and doing good deeds. Let me state it like this. Social action is not the gospel. It was not Jesus' message, and it was not Jesus' mission. Christians have always done it. We've done a lot of it. We do a lot of it here. But it is not primary. It is ancillary. It accompanies what we do in getting the gospel out. And you know why this church gives hundreds of thousands of dollars, has given through the years hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars for good projects to help people. We do it because first the gospel came and changed our hearts and gave us a true, genuine compassion for people. But it was not because we were trying to be do-gooders and change the world. It was the result of what the Lord had done in our own hearts. Four things that are exactly opposite of what you're being told in the world to get today. Jesus did not come to this earth to help us get along. You get that? He didn't come to bring peace. What did he say? Quote his own words back. I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He knew that the gospel would bring division among people. And so Jesus said, my primary thing was not to get people to get along. Jesus didn't come to teach us to take care of the poor. He assumed we would do that if we loved God and loved our neighbor. He didn't come to bring social justice. It'll never be accomplished in this life and in this world. There will always be injustices because men's hearts are not just. Men's hearts are corrupted by sin. He didn't come to show us how to live a moral or virtuous life. He didn't come to help you to be a better you. He came to make you a new you because he said the old you is broken. Jesus preached four main messages in his life. Turn with me to the most famous of all of his sermons. It's in Matthew 5, and it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And oh, what a wonderful, wonderful sermon it is. And uh, I would tell you, though, that this is the favorite sermon, the favorite passage in the Bible of liberals. People on the left, this is the one, ser- this is the one passage of Scripture they know something about. And in chapter 5, and, and, and so liberalism today, this, this woman was talking about the Sermon on the Mount, this president of, of Union Seminary. And she talked about our mission is caring for the poor without mentioning the gospel or anything about it. Well, I want you to look and see how that the Scripture has been wrested and taken from its context, even in cases like uh, what she was saying. In chapter 5, in verse number Two, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor. That's not what it says, is it? It says the poor in spirit. It's not talking about anybody's financial condition there. It's talking about 
their spiritual condition. Poor in spirit means people are broken over their sins. That they understand that before God, they have nothing. They're poverty stricken. I have nothing in my hands to bring to God. So he's not talking about economic conditions when he talks about the poor there. And you go on down, they that mourn and they that are meek. See, all of those are spiritual and emotional things. People that are broken by life. Not, he's not talking about a movement to, to take care of all the, the, the social evils of the day. Did Jesus care for the poor? Yes, he cared for the poor. He cared for the poor more than anybody's ever cared for the poor. But he also cared for the wealthy. He cared for the powerful. He cared for the average guy, the middle-class guy. He cared for everybody. And we've got to understand what the real focus of his ministry was, which I'll show you in just a moment. And his, his message was not social justice. His message was the gospel, Luke 4 and 18. Now, he preached again. His he, Four major messages of Jesus are all the messages we have recorded. First of all, there's the Sermon on the Mount. In John chapter 6, you, you have what we call the bread of life discourse, in which he says, I'm the bread of life, and if people are hungry. But he didn't, he, he wasn't even referring it. Poor is not even in that context. He means if people are hungry spiritually. I am the bread of life that will give them eternal nourishment, if you will. And then in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21, and I think Mark 13, it's called the Olivet Discourse, and it's a sermon on prophecy, so it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. And then in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, you have his longest message. It's called the Upper Room Discourse. And the upper room discourse, the Lord Jesus Christ is talking about primarily that he's leaving and the Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to fill believers and he's going to have a presence here on this earth and he's telling us how to live our lives and, 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 and walk in the Spirit. None of his sermons are dealing with what the liberal left and the religious left is saying is the primary mission of Christianity. So how does this apply to worldview? I want, as a pastor, to lead my church to look at the world and the need of the world through a biblical lens, not through a lens from the religious left. And I want you to see what Jesus' primary ministry was. Greg Kukul, who is a professor that I admire and an author, Greg Kukul says, you can eliminate every single thing Jesus said about the poor and social justice and never undermine his main message one bit, end of quote. In fact, you can read the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is almost universally understood by Christians to be the essence, the very core of all of Jesus' teaching. And you read the Gospel of John, and there's one reference to the poor in the whole book, chapter 12. And he says, the poor you always have with you. He's almost dismissive about it. You're always going to have the poor. You're not going to eliminate poverty. You remember when we had a president back in the 60s, and he had the war on poverty? And then you turn on the radio today, and how many trillions of dollars have been spent? And what do they say still in America? 
More poverty than ever. See, because the poverty is not coming for the reasons that we're often told. And so we just keep on emphasizing that without emphasizing changing people's hearts. So let me show you why Jesus did come. Why did he come? I've got a bunch of, of, of references. You may want to write these references down, but once I present all this evidence, to me it is absolutely overwhelming. If I were a lawyer standing in front of a jury, I think I'd win my case on this one. And I want to put the evidence right here before you out of the Word of God, and I want you to look at it. And I'm just going to go real quickly through these and read them. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 In the setting of that verse, an angel comes and visits Joseph before Jesus is born, shortly before Jesus is born. And he said, Joseph, when Jesus is born, you call his name Jesus, which, by the way, means deliverer, savior, rescuer. Call his name Jesus. His mission is he will save his people from their sins. He's not a political leader. He's not a social leader. He is a savior for the people of the world. And then I go to the, to the book of Luke chapter 1, and Jesus has just been born. And an angel comes and speaks to the shepherds. And he said, shepherds, I want you to go over here to Bethlehem to where the manger is. Today, a savior not a social crusader. A Savior has been born in the town of Bethlehem. And then in John chapter 1 and verse number 29, John the Baptist has a great crowd of people, a big evangelistic rally, we would say, thousands of people perhaps, and he sees Jesus approaching. And what does he say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, a Savior, the gospel, that there is an answer for man's sinfulness and brokenness and corrupt heart. And it is in this person who is called the Lamb of God, who when he sheds his blood, it's going to be the offering for sin one time and forevermore throughout all of eternity. The book of Mark, chapter 2, 17, the words of the Lord himself. He said, they that are whole need not a physician. You don't go to the doctor until you're sick. They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's his mission. There's why Jesus came. I came to call sinners to repentance. And by the way, my friend, until you will put yourself in the classification of people called sinners, you won't be saved. Until you realize your need and you say, I'm spiritually sick and I need the great physician to touch me, then of course you're probably not going to respond. And I go to the book of Luke, chapter 19 and verse 10, and of all the statements, this is perhaps the clearest, Luke 19 and 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. No doubt about why it came. And none of it involves what the rising, the 
religious left is telling us today in America. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse number, or pardon me, in John chapter 3 and verse 17, the verse that follows, the most famous verse in the Bible says that God didn't send his son to condemn the world, but the reason God sent his son was that the world through him might be saved. The mission of the Lord Jesus Christ the purpose in his coming, the essence, the heart of Christianity, what we're trying to do is not to reform a corrupt and broken world. It is to redeem a broken and corrupt world through the preaching of the gospel of Christ. In Matthew chapter 10 and 28, Jesus says there's a priority. I don't want you to fear them which can kill the body and take away your physical life, but they're not able to kill your soul. No, the spiritual is more important. Fear him which has the power to destroy both the soul and body in hell fire. That the spiritual always is the priority. Matthew 6 and 33, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be added unto you. I'd like for you to turn to me with me to a couple of them now real quickly that I want to point out. And I've given you, what, eight or nine different references there, and every one of them are saying the same thing. The purpose of the Lord Jesus coming into the world is not a social crusade. The purpose of Jesus coming into the world is redemption, the redemption of the human heart. If you look in Matthew chapter 20 with me, you'll really see this in one verse of Scripture. so very, very clear because honestly, honestly, in America today, you could divide evangelical churches right down the middle, and there's one side of that group, their whole agenda is a different agenda. And and very honestly, they probably get more attention than we get in, in our side of it. And we are just trying to carry on and preach the gospel and reach people for Jesus and see their lives change through the gospel. We don't get the press. You know, you, you get the press when you go paint somebody's house or do something like that because that's what the world is, it considers to be important. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 20 and in verse number 28 here, Jesus said, Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and here's the phrase, to give his life a ransom for many. Analyze those words with me there for just a very brief moment. What is a ransom? A ransom is a price that's paid. It's usually used in one of two contexts. It's either used to refer to the price that was paid for a slave in the days of slavery, and it's bought back. It has the idea of buying a body, if you will. Or it's used in the context of a kidnapping. And somebody kidnaps someone, holds them hostage, and they demand a ransom. And again, we're buying a body. That's a crude way to say it, but that's, that's the bottom line. A ransom is the price paid to buy back a human life, a a human being, a body, if you will. That's a ransom. Look at the verse. The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for many. 
So who did he pay this ransom for? For many. That's me. That's you. That's for the whole world. You see, we were all slaves of sin. We were all held captive by the devil at his will, the Bible says. We had lost our freedom. We were in bondage to our own lust and our own sins and our own brokenness in the fall. And so Jesus came and paid this ransom. And what was the ransom price that he paid? He sacrificed himself. As I'll be preaching on next week when we talk about the cross being one of the vital parts of that frame for the worldview. Jesus went to the cross and he poured out his blood and offered his body as we will remember when we take the Lord's Supper next Wednesday night a week. And we'll remember that again. The price of the ransom, the payment made for the many of us, millions and millions down through the years, who've taken him as our Savior. And then there's one other verse I want you to see. And it's the book of Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5. Now, this is an interesting passage. For years, I, I couldn't figure out what this passage was about. And I think I know now. This passage refers to the first Christmas. This passage quotes Jesus speaking to his father as he lies in the manger in Bethlehem. Now, that's unbelievable, but how did he do that? I don't know. Mary and Joseph, I don't suppose, heard him speak. Perhaps it wasn't even audible. But the story, the narrative says that when he was a little baby lying in the manger, that he spoke to his father in heaven. And here's what he said. Here I am. I accept the body, basically, that you have prepared for me. And I paraphrase this. And that body is going to bleed out one day for the forgiveness of sins. And Lord, I accept that. Let's read it now in our without my paraphrase here. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, wherefore when he cometh into the world, see that's Christmas. He said, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. The sacrifices and offerings that people have been offering for thousands of years, you don't really want them. But a body have you prepared, hast thou prepared me? And in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, You've had no pleasure with all these animals that have been sacrificed. And then said, I, these are the words of Jesus. Lo, I come. And in the volume of the book, it is written of me. I come to do thy will, O God. And what is God's will? Above when he said, sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin. You would not, all those Old Testament offerings. Neither do you have pleasure in them which are offered by the law. But I come to do thy will, O God. I give you my body that I have come into the world now and taken upon me, said Jesus. And God, someday I'm going to go to the cross 
and I'm going to bleed out every drop of blood so that man and women, men and women can be made new. And so he came and lived the life I can't live. I sinned, but he was sinless. I fall short, but he fulfilled God's law. I live for self. He lived for God. He never failed. He never compromised. He never was contaminated by the world around him. And basically what he did is he made a trade. He traded his body for our sins on the cross. He offered himself as the sacrifice of sin. And the significance of that is this. He didn't come, he didn't lay there in the manger and say, I came to eliminate poverty. I came to bring social justice. I came to stop illegal immigration or climate change. How, what, we, what are you going to do about that anyhow? It was really a far more radical message than that when you think about it. Because his message is one of personal, individual redemption. And we, when people find him and love him and serve him, they do those other things anyhow. We're not going to treat people wrong. He taught us to treat others as we want them to treat us. He told us, give and it shall be given. If you have a brother and he doesn't have a coat and you have two, you give him one of yours. Sure. But he wasn't speaking to the government to take it from us and then redistribute it to the whole world. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ can do something that no man-made program can do. It can produce a new man and a new woman. George Bush talked about his conversion when he was president. You heard him, no doubt. He said, they asked him, who was your favorite political philosopher? He said, Jesus Christ. Why do you say that, President Bush? He said, because he gave me a new heart. That's it. He gave me a new heart. And all the programs that men can conceive will fail as millions of them have until people have a new heart. And then one day he will come. And when he comes back, oh, there will be social justice then. He'll bring, he will rule with a rod of iron. And then justice will flow down like the waters of cover the seas, and the world will enjoy for the first time since that fall in Adam, the world will enjoy peace and prosperity and justice. Meanwhile, we're not trying to build that kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. We're trying to tell men and women, you can be redeemed and be a new person in Jesus. Bow your heads with me in prayer, please.